I'd like to say good morning to you. I'm Jamie, and I am one of the pastors around here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We will pick up where we left off last week. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under or in front of you, in the pew in front of you. You'll find Luke chapter 5 on page 861 of the Church Bible. Find it under the heading, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. If you could bring me down a little bit, it's pretty loud up here. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 down to 26. Ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. The one true living God will now speak to his people through his word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. O Lord, my rock and my refuge, strong defender, come now and be with us. Open our eyes that we may see the glories of Jesus Christ and do a work in our hearts. Set them on fire ablaze with rejoicing and celebration for the man Jesus Christ, an insatiable desire to see him glorified in all things. Amen. My goals today are simple. 
I am chasing, verse 26, for everyone in this room. Let's read it again. Verse 26, amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things here today. That's what I'm after. This is the goal of my message, that by seeing the awesomeness of Jesus Christ and His remarkable grace, I want every heart here gripped by a God-glorifying amazement which drives white-hot worship and celebration and a faith-fueled desire to bring others to Him. The goal of my message today is that you would see the awesomeness of Jesus Christ and His remarkable grace and that your heart would be gripped by a God-glorifying amazement which would drive worship and celebration and a faith-fueled desire to bring others to Him. That's my goal. And it is impossible. For this to happen to anyone, let alone to everyone, God the Holy Spirit is going to have to work a miracle. Two miracles, actually. First, your eyes need to see Jesus Christ. I can preach Him, I can show Him to you, I can tell you all about Him, but only the Spirit of God can reveal Him to you. And you need to see Jesus Christ, the beauty and worth of God the Son. You need to see that He is the answer to every and your greatest need. And that takes a miracle. But that's not the only miracle that we need here in this place today. You need God the Holy Spirit to set your weary and wayward heart ablaze with the sort of God-glorifying amazement that through faith in Jesus Christ drives you to bring others to Him. Verse 26 is where we're headed. But we won't get there to the, to the gripping, God-glorifying amazement which will drive worship and celebration. We won't get there until we go through verses 17 to 25. First, we need to see the worth and the beauty of God the Son who is the answer to every and greatest need. And so, that's where we'll start. In verse 17. We'll walk through this passage a little bit at a time. Let's read it again. And on one of those days when Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. As we've worked through this gospel, we've seen that news about Jesus of Nazareth has gone forth everywhere. In the passage that we considered last week, Jesus healed a leper. And it was an amazing miracle, and one miracle that carried a lot of messianic implications. And the Jewish people were looking forward to their Messiah, the anointed one of God who would save them. 
And it was said that the Messiah would do many great things, but one of the great things Messiah would do is he would heal the leper, which Jesus did. And so by his teaching and by his miracles, Jesus has caught the attention of the religious elites in Israel. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Now the gospel writer Luke notes that these boys had come from every village in Galilee, every village in Judea, even some of the big dogs came from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus and his teaching. Was Jesus intimidated by this? Not at all. He wrote the book, remember? The book was about him. But I should make the point that Jesus is in a house and he is, well, what's he doing? He's teaching. Where have we heard this before? It seems like every week Luke is telling us that Jesus is a preacher, Jesus is a teacher, and you have to wonder at this point, why does he keep telling us this? Why does Luke want us to know so often that Jesus is a teacher? Well, because throughout the Bible, our God is a speaking God. He forms and feeds and grows his people through his word. And as God the Son, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus does the same thing. He grows and forms and feeds his people through his word. And which, so you know, this is why elders, pastors, are called to be men who are teachers of the Bible. So who are these Pharisees, teachers of the law? Verse 21 calls them scribes. The Pharisees were a relatively small but highly influential group of Jews who emphasized a meticulous observance of God's law as the means by which you would attain righteousness and gain the favor of God. When Israel lived in exile in Babylon, there was a big concern that they would integrate into Babylonian culture to the extent that they would lose their ethnic identity. And so the leaders pressed the people to remain separate from pagan culture by zealously keeping God's law. These, later, these leaders eventually became known as the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separated ones. And we'll encounter the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke. The scribes, also called the teachers of the law, these were legal experts. They specialized in the interpretation and application of the law of Moses, doctors of divinity, as it were. And both the Pharisees and the Sadducees hear about Jesus of Nazareth, and they begin an investigation into him and into his claims. And so maybe you're here, and you're like the Pharisees and scribes, and you're doing your own investigation into the man, Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you, if that's the case, is just, well, to do your work well, to read the gospel, and to interrogate this man. 
You know, one of the reasons that, go- that the gospel of Luke was written so that, is so that you would have certainty about the things that you've heard about Jesus. Bring your scrutiny, your skepticism to this book, to this man in this book. And I want you to know that your questions will always be welcomed in this church. But I would give you a warning. The Bible is not like any other book. The Bible, the Word of God, is alive. And so, dear skeptic, you should prepare yourself that in your investigation of this man, Jesus Christ, you may just meet him. You see, he's no mere figure in human history. He is the living God, and he is as alive today as he was in the events described in this book. And you may find, as some sitting in this room have found, that in your attempts to disprove this man, you may actually meet him. And you may actually find that he is the answer to your every and to your greatest needs. Luke says, the power of God was with Jesus to heal. Now why does, why does Luke mention this? Well, most likely because of what happens next. <laughs> Anyone who thinks the Bible is dry and humorless has obviously not read much of the Bible. Let's pick up reading in verse 18. And behold, there were some men bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So get this picture in your mind. The Lord Jesus is in a house and he is teaching and the place is packed. His disciples are there, the Pharisees, the scribes are there, the windows are open, people are peering through the window, there's folks standing in the doorway. Everyone is listening with rapt attention to Jesus, the Son of God, speaking the Word of God. And now imagine you're in that room and you start hearing noise on the roof. The creaks of the beams tell you that there are people on the roof walking around. And this would not have been unusual, actually. Houses in the first century Palestine were built with flat roofs. Beams ran from wall to wall, and wooden branches would crisscross those beams, and they would be mortared together watertight. Staircases ran along the side of the house and up to the roof, where there were probably couches and tables, chairs, places to rest. The noise on the roof wouldn't have bothered you too much. But then the noise began to change. Suddenly there was a a banging and a scraping noise. And you're thinking to yourself, this is a terrible time to have your internet installed. (laughs) And then you start feeling debris hitting you on the top of the head. And you look up and you see sunlight coming through the ceiling. There's some dudes tearing a hole in the roof of the house. Now, you have to assume that the owner of this house is in the house with Jesus, right? The other Gospels seem to indicate that this was Peter's house. 
And so what are you going to do if this is your house? You're the homeowner, and you invite Jesus over to your place, and he wants to bring some friends, and you're fine with that. And then it turns into a college party where everybody tells everybody, and everyone shows up. There's people everywhere. Jesus is teaching, and it's amazing. And then someone's digging a hole in your roof. I don't know about you, but I'd be looking for a bat or something to go have a conversation with these boys tearing a hole in my roof. Like, I get it, guys. You want to see Jesus. We all want to see Jesus, but like he's got to come out of my house eventually. Why don't I just wait at the door? Well, these guys managed to make a hole big enough that their plan is to lower their paralyzed buddy through the hole that they've just cut in the roof. And you're wondering, like, who came up with this idea? You hear Jesus is going to be in your town. You want to bring your friend to him because you know Jesus has the power to heal him and you love your friend and maybe he was paralyzed when he was born. Maybe he had a four-wheeling accident. Who knows? But you feel bad for him and you want him to meet Jesus because you believe Jesus has the power to heal him. Mark's gospel tells us there were four men and they carry their buddy on his three-by-five cot. However far to get to Jesus. But by the time they get there, the place is packed. There's people everywhere, and they can't get in. Nobody's budging. And you have to imagine the paralytic, their buddies, sort of like, guys, it's cool. Like, I appreciate all the effort you've put in. Just lay me here. Jesus is going to come out eventually. But they're not having it. Verse 18 says, these were men. And, and by the idea that they come up with, we already know that they're men. Only men come up with such an idea, right? One of the guys is like, does anyone have any rope? <laughs> like, what are you going to need rope for? Hear me out. <laughs> Conversations like this, they always start with the phrase, hear me out. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're like, what if, what if we lowered him, got up on the roof, and lowered him down to Jesus? What, like th through the window, we're going to swing him or something and get him just the right angle? Through the, no, through the roof. And the dude disappears and he comes back with some rope. Maybe he like ransacked the homeowner's shed or something. And what's amazing to me is that this, this paralyzed guy, he just lets his friends do this. Like, did he not object at all? It's, I mean, it's not like he had that much of a choice. He couldn't run away. And these four guys manage somehow to tie this cot to a rope and to begin lowering their buddy through the hole in the roof down to Jesus. And so, so, so you're back in the house and the banging and the scraping and then now there's dust everywhere and Jesus stops his teaching and everyone in the house watches as Buddy is being lowered on a cot slowly down to Jesus. And thankfully, they didn't drop their friend or he goes sideways and then fall on someone and cause a bigger mess. But they stick the landing right there in front of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking like, <coughs> oh, snap, these boys are about to get a tongue lashing from the Lord of glory. They stopped his teaching. But Jesus looks at the man on the floor in front of him. And he looks up at these boys, now peering over the hole that they dug in the roof. And he sees them. And that's what they wanted, right? 
They wanted their buddy to be seen by Jesus. But Jesus sees more than they were expecting him to see. Luke says, he saw their faith. As we says to the paralytic lying on the floor, man, your sins are forgiven you. I'm pretty sure that's not what anyone was expecting Jesus to say. Most certainly not the guys on the roof after all the work that they went through. They were hoping for a healing. And Jesus gave them mercy. Now you have to understand, this is first century Palestine. This is an agrarian society. This is long before the days of social security and disability insurance. Without the use of his legs, Buddy isn't cultivating any fields or smithing any tools. He's altogether useless to society. He's at the mercy of others to work and to provide for him. Now, for any man, let alone a first century man, to not be able to provide for himself is devastating. Paralysis in his life is devastating. And his life was lived on this three-by-five cot, like his own little prison. And thank God Buddy's got friends like these. I don't know what they were thinking, It's possible that they were thinking, like a lot of people think today, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I need. I need new legs. I need to be able to work my field, play basketball, chase my kids in the backyard. I need legs. And you're forgiving sin? But Jesus knew what this man truly needed. More than he needed new legs, he needed a new heart. More than sensation in his feet, he needed his sins forgiven. Jesus knew what no one in that room knew. Healthy legs may walk Buddy into a home store, but they're not walking him into heaven. You see, this man's greatest need was forgiveness for his sin. And Jesus may heal his body, but if his soul remains untouched by the mercy of God, he's no better off. Because you know that even if Jesus heals him today, he's going to end up on that three-by-five cot some other time when he's an old man. His greatest need was the forgiveness of his sin. 
And I don't know what's brought you into church today. Maybe you're like one of the skeptics trying to investigate this man, Jesus. Maybe you came here with a great pressing need in your life. Maybe you were carried here on a cot like this guy. Whatever the reason you have for being here, I want you to know that I'm glad for you being here. And I want verse 26 for you. I want you to be gripped with God-glorifying amazement and awe. I want you to leave here saying what those people said. We've seen amazing things today. But the only way you are going to get to verse 26 to have your heart set ablaze by the glory of Jesus is by going through verse 20 yourself. You need to hear the Lord say to you, man, your sins are forgiven you. And you need to understand that your greatest need isn't physical healing. Your greatest need isn't relational reconciliation. Your greatest need isn't an extra 10 G's in your bank account. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. Medicine can fix your body. A good counselor can fix your relationships. A better job can give you more money in your bank account. But only God can forgive your sins. In our day, sin has been redefined as something like not being true to yourself or not living your own truth. But the Bible teaches that sin is not a failure to be true to yourself, but a failure to be true to God. Sin is any failure to conform to the law of God in your actions, in your attitudes, in your very nature. We sin when we do what God has forbidden. We sin when we don't do what God has commanded. And the consequences of sin are far more paralyzing than anything this man endured. The consequences of sin are eternal death. And so your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ today. Confess your sin before him and receive the free gift of forgiveness which can only come through Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks at the paralytic and says, man, your sins are forgiven you, he's saying as much about himself as he is about the man. And the scribes and the Pharisees picked up on this straight away. Let's keep reading verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who, who does he think he is? Who is this who speaks 
blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you? Or to say rise and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Now the scribes and Pharisees were no dummies. They knew their Bibles. They well understood what Jesus was saying. And this was blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know, they were exactly right about that. These men knew that all sin is an offense against God. And as such, only God can forgive sin. And this man from Nazareth is claiming to forgive Buddy's sin. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So let me flesh this out. Imagine someone stole your car and you knew who it was and they refused to give it back. And now imagine I go to the thief and I say to them, Mr. Thief, it's cool. I'm not even going to press charges. You're forgiven. Enjoy your new car. What are you going to do? You're going to cry foul. You can't do that. You can't forgive them. It's not your car. The offense wasn't against you. You can't absolve them of charges. I'm the one who determines whether charges will be pressed or not. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, he's saying, I'm the offended one. And I'm the judge. And by the way, cleared of all charges. And the Pharisees are like, you can't do that. His sins are against God. It's blasphemy for any man to claim that he can forgive sin. But it is blasphemy. Unless... Unless what, church? Unless that man is God. So follow the logic here. Sin is an offense against God. And only God can forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. Therefore, Jesus is God. So when Jesus was saying, your sins are forgiven you, he was saying as much about himself as he was the man. Jesus is claiming that he was God. And this is what gets the Pharisees and scribes so bent out of shape. <laughs> because it's God who determines how sin is to be forgiven. I mean, he gave, he gave an entire sacrificial system in order to deal with the sin of mankind. 
That man needed animal sacrifices in his place to substitute and cover for his sin. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. I mean, these boys had memorized the entire book of Leviticus just to get it right. So here comes this man, Jesus, saying, your sins are forgiven, circumventing the entire sacrificial system. Well, what no one in that room knew was that Jesus wouldn't circumvent the entire sacrificial system. Jesus would subsume the entire sacrificial system in himself on the cross. The reason Jesus could forgive Buddy's sin was that Jesus was God, and as God, the Son who became man, he would offer himself as the final and forever sacrifice for the sins of his people, past, present, and future. He would be the sacrifice to atone for that man's sin because of who he is, because of what he would do on the cross. He, and he alone, had the right to tell him, your sins are forgiven you. But of course, Jesus knew their thoughts. And in verse 22, he exposes their thoughts. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to forgive sin or to create a couple new legs? I mean, the Bible says that God created all things with his word. Every molecule in the universe was created by God, the Son, speaking. So what would it take in that house to create a couple of new legs for one man? Breath passing through his lips. But by contrast, what would it take for him to forgive his sins? It would take the agony of the cross. Would take him bearing the guilt and the shame of that man's sin. It would take absorbing the wrath of God for his elect. What Jesus was doing in that house was completely rewriting everyone's paradigm for need. Healing is for a moment. But forgiveness is forever. And so forgiveness was the greater miracle. Now, of course, Jesus didn't have to do this. But he gave the people in that house evidence of his authority to forgive sin. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he tells Buddy, stand up. Pick up your bed. Go home. I mean, look, anybody can say the words, your sins are forgiven, but only God can truly declare them forgiven and to prove that Jesus is God and thus carried the authority to forgive sin, he heals the man. In verse 25, we read, immediately the man rose up and he picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. The paralytic walking home with bed in hand glorifying God is a picture of the life of every believer. Having turned to Jesus in faith, she's been forgiven of her sins. 
She's been restored to right living. She's able to walk and follow the Lord in his every footstep. And she glorifies him all the way. Her three by five prison tucked under her arm, a constant reminder of her former life when she was paralyzed and a slave to sin, a constant reminder of God's grace to her. And now we come to verse 26. And this is where we'll end our time together. Amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. To some people, it may have seemed that Jesus performed one single miracle in that house that day. But it is my humble opinion that our Lord performed many miracles in that house that day. Responding to the faith of the paralytic and his friends, Jesus forgave sin. That's the greatest of all the miracles. And to substantiate that claim to forgive sin, he heals the man of his paralysis. And that's another miracle. And a house filled with sin-dead hearts, gripped with amazement at the person of Jesus Christ, worshiping and glorifying God, celebrating him as they go. That's a hundred more miracles. And there are some here who suffer illness and affliction, easily as debilitating and difficult as this man and his paralysis. And I want you to know that God is, God has, and God will work a miracle in your life. And your miracle will be no less extraordinary than the one we've just read. And your greatest miracle is that by the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in your place and through the faith that he has granted to you, God has forgiven your every sin fully and forever. And he has given you a new life, a new heart with new joys and new peace. Peace that's not dependent on your physical well-being. Peace that's not dependent on your bank account. Peace that's not dependent on how many people like you. And he has, by his resurrection, secured for you a place in his eternal kingdom. Where, so you know, you will receive a new body new legs, ones that won't suffer affliction and disease. And that is as certain for you as the grave is empty. And God may be pleased to heal you in an instant as he did for this man. And if he does, and we pray that he does, that would be a miracle 
a God-glorifying miracle. And we would all give praise to God for the work He's done in your life. He may do that. And God may be pleased to do a different miracle. He may be pleased to give you a miracle of faith and satisfaction in Him that while enduring whatever afflicts you, you afflict it full of joy and contentment in peace. And we pray for that miracle. And that is no less God-glorifying than any other miracle. To watch someone endure with joy some great affliction As they have peace in God. Enduring joy is a miracle equally as glorious as healing. So whether you are carrying a cot into this place or whether you were carried on a cot into this place, the greatest miracle is forgiven sin. A heart gripped with God-glorifying amazement, which drives white-hot worship and celebration of Jesus Christ, and one which seeks in every way you are able to bring your friends to Jesus Christ. Walk that miracle, that God-glorifying, joy-infused miracle. Enduring whatever the Lord lays in your path. Walk that miracle. Start that Bible study with people at work. Invite that Muslim neighbor into your home for dinner. Go to the unreached with the good news of Jesus Christ. And with your heart set ablaze with joy in Jesus, do everything you can to bring others to him so that they can leave this place just like you have, saying we have seen amazing things here today. May God be pleased to do this miracle in every heart today. Let's pray. Father, we bring to you our cold hearts, which we confess have been hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. And we confess to you, Lord, that we have viewed our needs from the wrong perspective. Lord, we've neglected the teaching of your word and we've given into the thinking of our age. We believe that our greatest need is physical and emotional. And we've spent so much of our time thinking and fretting about these things far less time that we spent rejoicing in your son, in your mercy. And we ask that you would forgive us. Will you remind us of Jesus? Will you set our hearts on fire with joy in him? And with a cross-purchased contentment that will sustain peace no matter what affliction we endure. 
And will you grant us a deeper desire to reach the lost in Piqua, in Miami County, in the world? And will you grant us a boldness like Buddy's four friends to take risks to bring others to know you? Send us from this place gripped with wonder and amazement and awe and a desire to bring others to meet Jesus. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please stand to your feet. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, well, we have an assurance of pardon. And I think it's appropriate that our assurance of pardon comes from the passage we considered just a moment ago. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, hear these words over your life, the same as you heard them over the paralytic's life. And when he saw your faith, he said, man, woman, your sins are forgiven you.